One of the families in a previous congregation of ours had a business acquaintance that seemed to be a very sincere Christian. He had four children. The oldest was a girl and then three sons. This man and his wife both wanted another girl desperately. So one morning he prayed and said something to the effect, God, if we could just be certain that we could have another girl, then we would get pregnant again. He opened his Bible at random and just knew that God had given him his answer. The passage he read was from Matthew 20, verse 16, that reads, So the last will be first, and the first last. Because his first child was a girl, he determined from that verse that God must be telling him that his last child would also be female. That couple did get pregnant and were anxiously awaiting the birth of that fifth child. The mother even decorated the baby's room in pink since she felt confident that God was giving them a girl. As it turned out, though, this anticipated she was actually a he, which demonstrates two things. One is that God has a sense of humor, and second, that this man's approach to family planning was based on a bad hermeneutic. There is a word for understanding the Bible, and that word is hermeneutics. And biblical hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. Throughout this miniature series, we're discussing four hermeneutical principles. In the previous messages in this series, we commented on the literal principle, and then last time, the historical principle. Notice the definitions. The literal principle is teaching us that we are to first understand Scripture in the normal, literal sense of the word, unless there is a strong reason not to. Second, the historical principle is teaching us that we are to interpret Scripture according to what it meant at the time it was written. In this message, we're going to address the third principle, and that's the grammatical principle. Notice the definition. The grammatical principle is teaching us that we are to determine what a text means in terms of its words and grammar. To determine what a text means in terms of its words and grammar. Language is critical to understanding what someone says. And especially is language critical to understanding what God has said. Conservative evangelical Christians, and we represent that category, hold to a doctrine called the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. And that particular teaching is rooted in a passage from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, where Paul said, All Scripture, not just some Scripture, but all Scripture, is given by inspiration of God. Plenary is a word meaning all, all of something, not just a part, all. Verbal means words. Verbal means words. And inspiration comes from the Greek language. The word is theopneustos. And theopneustos means God breathed. Inspiration, theopneustos, means God breathed. The definition is this. Plenary verbal inspiration means that all the words of Scripture in the original manuscripts, and sometimes those are called autographs, 
All the words of Scripture in those original manuscripts were breathed out from the mouth of God himself. God breathed out of his mouth all the actual words of Scripture, and then 40 different men over a period of 16 centuries wrote those words down for us to read in a compilation of 66 books called the Bible. I contend that if God has inspired each word in Scripture, and he has, then we should exert an effort to understand the meaning of those words that he has inspired. Because words matter. Words matter. There are two basic ancient languages that are used throughout Scripture. The ancient Hebrew language was used throughout the Old Testament, except for the Aramaic language used in a small portion of Daniel, as we discussed in our Daniel series. Then the ancient Greek language was used throughout the New Testament. And in particular, it was a form of that language called Koine Greek, spelled K-O-I-N-E, pronounced Koine Greek. This Koine Greek was the common Greek. It was the language the average person on the street would use and understand. It wasn't the classical Greek ancient philosophers such as Plato and Aristotle used. This was the language of the common people. Since we are an English-speaking people, we use English translations that have been translated from those ancient Hebrew and Greek languages. There are different English translations represented in this room. Some people use the New American Standard Version. Some use the English Standard Version, or the New International Version, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And then some people use a paraphrase instead of a translation, although I don't recommend using a paraphrase as a primary text. A supplemental text, but not the primary text. I use multiple different translations, but the translation I preach from is the New King James translation. The problem is the English language has changed over time, and it continues to change. That means to interpret a biblical text, even if we're using a modern translation that has updated some of the more difficult language, there are still words and phrases we cannot completely understand unless we consult the original languages. Question, how do we determine the meaning of a word in the original biblical languages? There are three basic steps. One, use a good lexicon if possible. Use a good lexicon if possible. The reason I said if possible is because 99% of us don't have abilities in the biblical languages. I do have a copy of Thayer's Greek-English lexicon up here. Uh, that is available after the service if you wish to come up and browse through it just to demonstrate how language technical lexicons are. I also have a problem not understanding biblical language. I told someone I know just a little Hebrew and a little Greek. The little Hebrew owns a men's clothing store and the little Greek operates a delicatessen. I know just enough of the ancient languages to be dangerous, so I don't use lexicons. Second, use a good concordance. A good concordance. The most popular concordance is Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. 
This cordance in book form, such as this one I'm holding, is considered old school. Um, because there are now phone apps and computer software that have this concordance. I should add that there is a software program called Logos, or Lagos, that has this concordance and lexicons and so much more. Thousands of biblical commentaries are available on that program and so much more. It's in its ninth edition and it's expensive. I have a pastor friend who started purchasing Logos uh, earlier on, he said to date he has spent more than $30,000 on all the upgrade, upgraded versions. Um, I don't recommend that. Uh, this is considered an exhaustive concordance because it contains each word that is found in Scripture. It has the particular biblical reference where that word is found, and it also gives the original definition for each ancient word. A concordance or a software package containing a concordance should be one of the first items a new Christian purchases after he purchases a Bible because the Hebrew and Greek dictionaries are essential to understanding the original meaning of each word. Third, define a word according to context. Define a word according to context. We must understand that sometimes a single word in the original languages can have more than one meaning. I knew you would turn right there, so I'm kind of pausing. I learned that from the first service. A single word in the original languages can have more than one meaning. And the same is true in our language. Some of our words have multiple meanings. Example, the word mouse can describe a bothersome rodent. And we do have a mouse problem here at the moment. Or a mouse can describe a handheld computer device that controls the cursor on the screen. Again, multiple meanings. Orange is both a color and a fruit. And the fruit is orange. Question, if a word has more than one meaning, then how do we determine which meaning God intended? The answer is that more often than not, the immediate context where that word is found determines the meaning of that particular word. For instance, consider the Old Testament word yada, Y-A-D-A, -A, pronounced yada. That word yada is sometimes translated into the English language as the word no or new. That ancient word yada might mean to know someone in a relational sense, such as an acquaintance or friend, or yada might mean knowing someone in an intimate and sexual sense. And there's a significant difference between those definitions. There is a difference between those meanings. So the question is, how do we determine which meaning is intended? If we investigate the meaning of an ancient word and learn that it has more than one definition, more than one meaning, then we need to determine how that word is used in its context in order to determine its exact meaning. Some examples, Genesis 29, verses 4 and 5. And Jacob, remember Jacob was one of the earliest Jewish patriarchs. Patriarch meaning famous father. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Verse 5. Then he, Jacob, said to them, do you know Laban? 
Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. Jacob used the word yada, translated here as no. He used that word in a relational sense. Jacob said to those men, do you know Laban in a relational sense? And those men responded, yes, we do know Laban in that sense. The immediate context around this word yada, translated as no, indicates that those men knew Laban in a relational and social sense. And that's the meaning of the word as it was used in this text. Notice another example. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. This word knew is translated from that same exact Hebrew word, yada. This verse reads, the first man knew the first woman. But does this yada translated as new, mean that Adam only knew Eve in a relational sense? Does it mean that the first two humans were just best friends? No, it means more than that. The verse reads, now Adam knew Eve his wife. And notice what happened next. And she conceived and bore Cain. Cain is the first child to ever be born. And she conceived and bore Cain and Eve, the first woman, said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That word yada, translated as new in this verse, must mean something more than friendship. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So Cain has his first child named Enoch, and Enoch was the first grandchild to ever be born. And Enoch was born because his parents knew one another in a sexual sense. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. It is undeniable that whatever this word yada means in these verses, it's creating babies. This isn't just knowing someone in a relational sense. This Hebrew word yada, translated here as new, meant to know someone in an intimate sexual sense. Notice that in both cases, it was the exact same word in the original Hebrew language, and it was translated as the exact same word in the English language. But the context determined which definition applied. It is so important to define a word according to its context, and we will discuss that in more detail next time. Consulting lexicons, if possible, consulting concordances and dictionaries, and then considering the context are three basic strategies for determining the meaning of biblical words and phrases. And that is essential to the grammatical principle. Remember, words matter. Let me mention another example of using this dramatic grammatical principle. Consider the Great Commission. The Great Commission was Jesus' final instructions and assignment to the church just before he ascended into heaven. Matthew 28, verse 19, this should sound familiar to some of us. Jesus said, this is just before his ascension, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them 
notice, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That word baptizing is not an actual translation of an ancient Greek word. Remember, this is the Greek New Testament. It, but baptizing is not a translation of an ancient Greek word. Instead, this word baptizes is considered a transliteration. A transliteration, and notice the difference between them. Translation means to move a word from one language into another language, an equivalent word in another language. Move a word from one language to an equivalent word, meaning a word that has the same essence and meaning in another language. An example, the Spanish word adios is translated into English as goodbye. During Vacation Bible School, we learned that the ancient Hebrew word shalom meant peace. The word shalom is used as both a greeting and a farewell. Those words are translations, but a transliteration is different. Notice the definition. Transliteration means to respell a word from one language into another language using the closest corresponding letters of that language's alphabet. Transliteration means to respell a word from one language into another language using the closest corresponding letters of that language's alphabet. The most popular English translation of the Bible until the mid-20th century was the King James translation. It was an exhaustive translation process. From 54 to 60 brilliant linguists were commissioned to translate, commissioned as translators on that project. Those men were divided into six committees. Two committees met at Oxford, two committees met at Cambridge, two committees met at Westminster. The project was commissioned in 1604 and it was finished and published in 1611. The English that was used in that original translation was considered early modern English. Early modern English. Just before that time, the English language as a whole had undergone a significant change from Middle English to early modern English. Even though it was considered a form of modern English, the first edition of that translation would still have been extremely difficult for us to read. These are pages from that first edition of the 1611 King James translation of the Bible. Uh, it's too far to read, but if you were to get closer, you would see it is very, very difficult to read because languages change. The English language has changed since that time, so the King James translation has since been updated in different editions to match some of the changing English language. The older edition that is sold in bookstores and online now is the 1769 edition. And then in 1982, the completed New King James translation was published. The New King James translation, though, is not just an updated uh, edition of the original King James um, it consulted other manuscripts other than the ones the King James was translated from, so it's sort of different. But some words have never changed in modern English translations of the Bible. One of them is the word baptize. The translators of that original King James Version came to a particular Greek word 
in the New Testament text, such as Matthew 28, verse 19, and instead of translating that word into an equivalent word in our language, those men transliterated that word. On a personal basis, I believe that was done as a political accommodation, but there's not enough time to get into that. Those men transliterated that Greek word, and that transliterated Greek word was baptizo. Baptizo. And using the closest corresponding letters from our alphabet, those translators respelled that word into our language and created a new English word, and that word is baptize. Baptize and its associated forms, baptizing and baptism. What's more, those men did not translate that word baptizo into our language, but instead respelled that word into our language, and in doing that created a new word that we still use even now. Question, what do these words, baptizo and baptize, that transliteration, mean? That's an important question, because different denominations and Churches use different modes to baptize. There are three basic baptism modes. One, there's aspersion. Aspersion, the word aspersion means to sprinkle. Sprinkle. Methodists practice sprinkling. So do Catholics. Some denominations just dab some water on someone's forehead and consider that baptism. Second is effusion. The word effusion means to pour. Presbyterians practice pouring. There's a large non-denominational church in Reno that has a baptismal candidate stand in a plastic swimming pool and then someone pours a bucket full of water on his head. That's pouring on steroids. That's what that is. Third, there's immersion. The word immersion means to submerge in a liquid. To submerge in a liquid. Some synonyms to immersion are to plunge, to dip, to dunk, to sink, and to saturate. Immersion means submerging someone completely underneath the water and then bringing them up out of the water. That's immersion. Most evangelical denominations practice immersion because immersion is the biblical mode for baptism. And we're going to demonstrate that in a minute. Question, if immersion represents biblical baptism, then where did sprinkling and pouring originate? Those modes originated centuries ago in the Roman Catholic Church. In the beginning, the church practiced immersion, as we do now. But that changed over time. Remember, Catholicism is predicated on seven sacraments. And according to the church, those sacraments are essential to someone's salvation. A sacrament is said to confer grace onto the one that receives that sacrament. That's called sacramental grace. None of the Catholic sacraments matter until someone receives the first sacrament, and that is baptism. Catholic baptism is said to do two things. This is not on the note sheet, uh, so you can still jot it down if you wish. First, baptism, according to Catholicism, removes someone's original sin. Baptism removes someone's original sin. All humans have inherited original sin from the first human. 
We have inherited original sin from Adam's first sin through generation after generation of our ancestors until we are conceived and born with original sin on our soul. According to Romans 5 and verse 12, original sin is the reason we all die. It's a matter of cause and effect. The effect is death that causes original sin. It's interesting that baptized Catholics do still die, proving that baptism doesn't remove original sin. Second, Catholic baptism also confers onto someone sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. Catholicism teaches that baptism actually positions someone into a state of sanctifying grace. And that straight of state of sanctifying grace is solidified through the second sacrament called confirmation. And then after that confirmation, someone is to continue performing the different sacraments until he dies, and then he gets to go to purgatory. Not heaven, purgatory. Even good Catholics go to purgatory. That means Catholicism considers baptism to be an absolute essential to earning salvation. Notice I said earning salvation. Catholic apologists would push back on that and say, no, we're not earning. But if we, if we analyze soteriology according to Catholicism, there's no question Catholicism is a meritorious sacramental religion. That means salvation, according to them, is not according to grace alone, as evangelicals teach. Because Catholicism teaches that baptism is so essential to salvation, the church felt that it was important that someone be baptized as soon as possible in case there was a sudden and unexpected death. So, in order that someone's original sin could be removed from his soul, and so that he could receive sanctifying grace, all of that as soon as possible, the Catholic Church started practicing infant baptism. Infant mortality rate at that time was high, so the probability of a child not surviving, um, you know, being an infant was, was, was real. And so the Catholic Church felt we've got to baptize babies as soon as possible. Around the 4th century AD, cathedrals were first being constructed in Europe and small baptisms were installed in those massive buildings. Uh, those miniature baptistries are still there and some of our congregation have actually seen them. Those baptistries were designed to baptize infants through immersion. The concern was though, Baptizing babies through immersion could be a threat to that child's health. If an infant were immersed, he could easily be frightened and open his mouth as he was being submerged underneath the water so he would swallow water and chance getting water in his lungs. And stone cathedrals were extremely cold during the winter months. Cold and wet are not a good combination. At that time, pneumonia was most often a fatal disease. So that was a serious matter. So over time, because of those health concerns, the church gradually moved from practicing immersion to practicing sprinkling. And then in 1311 AD, the church council of Ravenna determined that the church would no longer practice immersion, period. And it hasn't since that time. Most people know, or we should know, that the Catholic church was divided in 1054 AD. That is a strategic date, 1054 A.D. That was called the Great Schism. 
the western part of the Catholic Church, known as the Roman Catholic Church, headquartered at Rome, Italy, that portion of the church continued to practice sprinkling. The eastern part of the church, headquartered at Constantinople, now renamed Istanbul, Turkey, consisting of Orthodox churches, and that half of the church continued to practice immersion, and still do. Orthodox churches immerse. A dramatic example of that was in the 2002 movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. There's a scene where the groom, John Corbett's character, Ian Miller, Ian was being baptized into the Greek Orthodox Church, and the scene shows him being immersed, not sprinkled, immersed, because that's the practice of the Greek Orthodox Church. I might add it was the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. And I have no idea why I told you that. In addition, <laughs> in addition, those churches and denominations that have emerged from Catholicism through the centuries, such as the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church here that is part of the Anglican Communion, Lutheranism, Methodists, Presbyterians, and other groups that have descended from the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation period and after, those churches still retained the Catholic practice of sprinkling or pouring. And as Catholicism does, all those groups still practice infant baptism. That's called paedo-baptism. Paedo-baptism, notice the definition. Paedo-baptism is the practice of baptizing infants. We do not practice paedo-baptism. We practice credo-baptism. Notice the definition. Credo-baptism is the practice of baptizing those that have exercised personal faith in Jesus Christ. Credo from creed is a Latin word that means I believe. So credo-baptism is for those that have believed on Jesus and received salvation. Infant baptism is not biblical baptism. Because one, an infant cannot understand the gospel. And second, an infant cannot believe the gospel for themselves. That's the reason there is no explicit command in Scripture to baptize infants. And there's no biblical record of an infant ever being baptized. I could spend an hour or more substantiating creedal baptism from Scripture, but there isn't enough time. I'll do that another time because the question under consideration is about the mode of baptism. Strong's Concordance defines the original Greek word baptizo as to make whelmed, that is fully wet. To make whelmed, that is fully wet. And whelmed means to cover with water, to submerge. That's describing baptism through immersion. Listen to this. Author Stanley Edward Anderson said, quote, that the New Testament Greek word baptizo means immerse is declared by more than 16 standard English dictionaries, seven standard etymological dictionaries, 26 encyclopedias, 20 Bible dictionaries, 20 religious encyclopedias, 50 Greek lexicons, 40 classic Greek authors, 18 early Christian authors from Irenaeus, Tortillian, Cyprian, Hippologist, uh, Athanasia, Cyril, 
Basil the Great, Ambrose, Chrysostom, and then 13 New Testament translations from the first six centuries, 70 famous commentators, 35 great theologians, 12 authorities on the Greek church, 38 authorities on the Roman Catholic Church, 15 Lutherans, 60 Church of England scholars, 8 Methodist scholars, 25 Presbyterians, 8 Quakers, and 79 other miscellaneous scholars. The grand total is 633 scholars, very, very few of whom are Baptist, and there are very few duplications. There's no question that the ancient word in the original Greek language, baptizo, meant immersion. Now, some advocates of sprinkling use the argument that immersion isn't or wasn't practical. Uh, According to them, there wasn't enough available water in Palestine to immerse someone in ancient biblical times. But that argument doesn't hold water, pun intended, because archaeologists have uncovered ancient pools throughout the Palestine area. And besides, there's still the Jordan River plus other water sources. Biblical baptism is immersion. That means submerging someone completely underneath the water and then bringing them up out of the water. I should mention there's another form of baptism that is practiced called tri-immersion. The prefix tri means three. So tri-immersion means someone is baptized three times. Once for each member of the triune Godhead. Someone is baptized once for the Father. He's brought back up put back under, baptized a second time for the son, brought back up, uh, then put back under, baptized once for the Holy Spirit. If he survives that and doesn't drown, that's basically (laughs) the the mode of baptism. Uh, In some cases, these tri-immersionists baptize someone face forward and not backward as we do. The reason we baptize someone backwards is because we lower someone underneath the water. It represents Jesus being taken down from the cross and being buried in the tomb. And Jesus wasn't buried face down. He was buried on his back just as we are buried now. But that shouldn't be a point of contention. I mean, it's not something we need to be upset about if someone's baptized three times or if it's face forward. It's not that important. Church historians believe some of the earlier church fathers such as Tertullian. I might add, Tertullian was the first man to coin the term Trinity. Tertullian, Cyril, Basil, Jerome, Chrysostom, and others were the first to do tri-immersion baptisms. In evangelicalism, the Grace Brethren denomination has used this mode in more recent times, and most Orthodox churches practice tri-immersion. I don't believe tri-immersion is a bad thing, but I don't see that it's a necessary thing. On the whole, evangelicalism teaches the correct biblical mold for baptizing someone is singular immersion. One time submerging someone completely underneath the water, then bringing them back up out of the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me finish, and this is review for some of us who Uh, just were baptized because you probably heard a message I brought on this 84 months ago. So this is somewhat review. Five reasons biblical baptism is immersion. Five reasons. One, immersion is the only baptism mode that pictures Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
It is the only mode that pictures Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Remember, baptism was designed to be an object lesson for the Christian gospel. That's found in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, defines the gospel as the message that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried in a tomb, and then he was resurrected from the dead. Sprinkling some drops of water onto someone's head doesn't picture that gospel. Pouring some water onto someone's head doesn't picture that gospel. And that's a problem because that's one reason for baptism. Someone at baptism in a public sense is identifying themselves with the death of Jesus on the cross, his burial in the tomb, and then his resurrection from the dead. Second, biblical baptism requires large quantities of water. Large quantities of water. Notice John 3 verse 23. And John, this is John the Baptist, also was baptizing in Anon near to Selim. Question, why did John select that particular geographical location to baptize? Couldn't he have baptized somewhere else more convenient? Why did he have to go to Anon to baptize? Read on. Because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. The reason John selected that particular geographical region was because there was an abundance of water there. The only mode of baptism that requires large quantities of water is immersion. I can't immerse someone in a five-gallon bucket full of water. Cannot do that. Immersion requires a significant amount of water, and that's the reason John selected that particular location. This is a quickie, number three. There's no record in Scripture of anyone being baptized through sprinkling or pouring. Read the New Testament. It's just not there. Four, remember the meaning of the ancient word, baptizo, transliterated as baptized. If it says translated, that is a misprint. Let's transliterate it, good. Um, meant to immerse. Remember, the original meaning of that word baptizo meant to immerse. We just demonstrated that the Greek word baptizo meant immerse, and that's the word used in the New Testament to describe baptism. The ancient Greek people had another word for sprinkling, and that word was rantizo. Rantizo meant to sprinkle. The Greeks also had another word for pouring, and that word was echio, and echio meant to pour. It's interesting, in each of the biblical passages where baptism is mentioned, neither one of those other words is used. And the reason is because baptism is not sprinkling and baptism is not pouring. The miscellaneous verses that address baptism use a different word altogether. And as we said earlier, that word is baptizo, meaning to immerse. Number five, the Bible mentions people that were being baptized as going down into the water and coming up out of the water. Going down into the water and coming up out of the water. Acts 8, verses 38 and 39, Philip from the church of Jerusalem was an evangelist. He'd been commissioned to go into the desert and meet this eunuch, um, and he did. And he shared with him the gospel. The eunuch believed on Jesus, and then there was an oasis in that desert. And uh, verse 38, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Verse 39, now when they came up out of the water... Um, the fact the baptismal candidate goes 
down into the water and then comes up out of the water demonstrates that person has been immersed. I think a more profound example, though, is Mark 1, 9, and 10. Uh, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water. Notice, coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him. Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan River, and some of our people have been baptized in that river. John the Baptist, also called John the Baptizer, was baptizing Jesus. And notice, after he was baptized, Jesus came up from the water. He didn't come out of the water as if he waded out of the river and then walked onto the bank. He did do that, but that's not what this is speaking of. No, he came up from the water and he would have had to have been underneath the water in order to come up from the water. Jesus' baptism was immersion. I can remember when we were pastoring in the Midwest, I was sitting in a doctor's office waiting area one afternoon and there's all these magazines and I happened to notice a children's book of Bible stories. I was just curious. Uh, so I picked it up and started thumbing through the pages and happened to notice on the front it was produced by a particular Presbyterian uh, publishing company. I flipped through the pages and inside there was a picture of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And it was most unusual. I had never seen this before. Let me describe that picture. John and Jesus were shown standing in the Jordan River, waist deep in water. There was John, beside John, there was Jesus, both of them standing waist deep in the Jordan River water. And the picture showed John, who had a cup, pouring some water onto the head of Jesus. That was his Presbyterian baptism. I am a simple man. I have a simple mind. So this is a simple question. Why was it necessary for John and Jesus to go into the river to baptize Jesus if all John intended to do was pour some water on his head? That doesn't make sense to me. If all John needed to do to baptize Jesus was pour some water on his head, couldn't he have done that on the river bank or somewhere else? Why was it necessary to wade out into the Jordan River, waist deep in the water, and then pour a cup of water on his head? It all seems so illogical. Remember our rule from earlier? When normal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense or else we get nonsense. That picture was nonsense. If you were only baptized as an infant, then you haven't been baptized. If you were only baptized before you received Jesus at salvation, then you haven't been baptized. If you were only baptized in a manner other than immersion, then you haven't been baptized. So when we announce our next baptism service in the fall, sign up because you need to be baptized. Let's bow our heads. Father, it is true, words matter. I realize that part of the Bible we cannot understand, but parts of the Bible we cannot misunderstand, and I believe this is one of those parts. It is apparent that you want people who believe on your son Jesus to be baptized, to go public with that decision. 
in water through immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, symbolizing, depicting, picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I pray there be anyone here who, they have Jesus, they've said yes to him, they know him as their Savior, but they've never been biblically baptized. I pray that they will make a determination right now in their heart to do that as soon as we schedule another baptism service. So God, I just commit this sermon to you. I realize it was academic to some degree and more technical than most, but I hope it made sense. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.